Chapter Thirteen, Part Two of the Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter Thirteen, Part Two. The Monday morning came. It was the end of September, and a drizzle of fine rain, like veils round her, making her seem intimate, a world to herself. She walked forward to the new land. The old was blotted out. The veil would be rent that hid the new world. She was gripped hard with suspense as she went down the hill in the rain, carrying her dinner-bag. Through the thin rain she saw the town, a black, extensive mount. She must enter in upon it. She felt at once a feeling of repugnance and of excited fulfilment, but she shrank. She waited at the terminus for the tram. Here it was beginning. Before her was the station to Nottingham, whence Teresa had gone to school half an hour before. Behind her was the little church school she had attended when she was a child, when her grandmother was alive. Her grandmother had been dead two years now. There was a strange woman at the marsh, with her uncle Fred and a small baby. Behind her was Cossetay, and blackberries were ripe on the hedges. As she waited at the tram terminus, she reverted swiftly to her childhood. Her teasing grandfather, with his fair beard and blue eyes, and his big monumental body. He had got drowned. Her grandmother, whom Ursula would sometimes say she had loved more than anyone else in the world— the little church school, the Phillips boys. One was a soldier in the lifeguards now, one was a collier. With a passion she clung to the past. But as she dreamed of it, she heard the tram-car grinding round a bend, rumbling dully. She saw it draw into sight and hum nearer. It sidled round the loop at the terminus and came to a standstill, looming above her. Some shadowy grey people stepped from the far end, the conductor was walking in the puddles, swinging round the pole. She mounted into the wet, comfortless tram, whose floor was dark with wet, whose windows were all steamed, and she sat in suspense. It had begun her new existence. One other passenger mounted, a sort of charwoman with a drab wet coat. Ursula could not bear the waiting of the tram— the bell clanged, there was a lurch forward, the car moved cautiously down the wet street. She was being carried forward into her new existence. Her heart burned with pain and suspense, as if something were cutting her living tissue. Often, oh, often, the tram seemed to stop, and wet-cloaked people mounted and sat mute and grey in stiff rows opposite her, their umbrellas between their knees. The windows of the tram grew more steamy, opaque. She was shut in with these unliving spectral people. Even yet it did not occur to her that she was one of them. The conductor came down issuing tickets. Each little ring of his clipper sent a pang of dread through her. But her ticket surely was different from the rest. They were all going to work. She also was going to work. Her ticket was the same. She sat trying to fit in with them, but fear was at her bowels. She felt an unknown terrible grip upon her. At Bath Street she must dismount and change trams. She looked uphill. It seemed to lead to freedom. She remembered the many Saturday afternoons she had walked up to the shops. How free and careless she had been. 
Ah, her tram was sliding gingerly downhill. She dreaded every yard of her conveyance. The car halted. She mounted hastily. She kept turning her head as the car ran on, because she was uncertain of the street. At last, her heart a flame of suspense, trembling, she rose. The conductor rang the bell brusquely. She was walking down a small, mean, wet street, empty of people. The school squatted low within its railed asphalt yard that shone black with rain. The building was grimy and horrible. Dry plants were shadowily looking through the windows. She entered the arched doorway of the porch. The whole place seemed to have a threatening expression, imitating the church's architecture, for the purpose of domineering, like a gesture of vulgar authority. She saw that one pair of feet had paddled across the flagstone floor of the porch. The place was silent, deserted, like an empty prison, waiting the return of tramping feet. Ursula went forward to the teacher's room that burrowed in a gloomy hole. She knocked timidly. "'Come in,' called a surprised man's voice, as from a prison cell. She entered the dark little room that never got any sun. The gas was lighted, naked and raw. At the table, a thin man in shirt-sleeves was rubbing a paper on a jelly tray. He looked up at Ursula with his narrow, sharp face, said, "'Good morning,' then turned away again and stripped the paper off the tray, glancing at the violet-coloured writing transferred before he dropped the curled sheet aside among the heap. Ursula watched him, fascinated. In the gaslight and gloom and the narrowness of the room all seemed unreal. "'Isn't it a nasty morning?' she said. "'Yes,' he said. "'It's not much of weather.' But in here it seemed that neither morning nor weather really existed. This place was timeless. He spoke in an occupied voice like an echo. Ursula did not know what to say. She took off her waterproof. "'Am I early?' she asked. The man looked first at a little clock, then at her. His eyes seemed to be sharpened to needle-points of vision. Twenty-five past,' he said. "'You're the second to come. I'm first this morning.' Ursula sat down gingerly on the edge of a chair, and watched his thin red hands rubbing away on the white surface of the paper, then pausing, pulling up a corner of the sheet, peering and rubbing away again. There was a great heap of curled white and scribbled sheets on the table. "'Must you do so many?' asked Ursula. Again the man glanced up sharply. He was about thirty or thirty-three years old, thin, greenish, with a long nose and a sharp face. His eyes were blue and sharp as points of steel. Rather beautiful, the girl thought. Sixty-three, he answered. So many, she said gently. Then she remembered. But they're not all for your class, are they? she added. Why aren't they? he replied, a fierceness in his voice. Ursula was rather frightened by his mechanical ignoring of her and his directness of statement. It was something new to her. She had never been treated like this before, as if she did not count, as if she were addressing a machine. "'It is too many,' she said sympathetically. "'You'll get about the same,' he said. That was all she received. She sat rather blank, not knowing how to feel. Still, she liked him. He seemed so cross. There was a queer, sharp, keen-edged feeling about him that attracted her and frightened her at the same time. It was so cold and against his nature. 
the door opened, and a short, neutral-tinted young woman of about twenty-eight appeared. "'Oh, Ursula!' the newcomer exclaimed. "'You are here early. My word, I'll warrant you don't keep it up. That's Mr. Williamson's peg. This is yours. Standard five teacher always has this. Aren't you going to take your hat off?' Miss Violet Harvey removed Ursula's waterproof from the peg on which it was hung to one a little further down the row. She had already snatched the pins from her own stuff hat and jammed them through her coat. She turned to Ursula as she pushed up her frizzed, flat, dun-coloured hair. "'Isn't it a beastly morning?' she exclaimed. "'Beastly! And if there's one thing I hate above another, it's a wet Monday morning, pack of kids trailing in anyhow, nohow, and no holding them. She had taken a black pinafore from a newspaper package and was tying it round her waist. "'You've brought an apron, haven't you?' she said jerkily, glancing at Ursula. "'Oh, you'll want one. You've no idea what a sight you'll look before half-past four, what with chalk and ink and kids' dirty feet. Well, I can send a boy down to Mamma's for one.' "'Oh, it doesn't matter,' said Ursula. "'Oh, yes, I can send easily,' cried Miss Harvey. Ursula's heart sank. Everybody seemed so cocksure and so bossy. How was she going to get on with such jolty, jerky, bossy people? And Miss Harvey had not spoken a word to the man at the table. She simply ignored him. Ursula felt the callous, crude rudeness between the two teachers. The two girls went out into the passage. A few children were already clattering in the porch. "'Jim Richards,' called Miss Harvey, hard and authoritative. A boy came sheepishly forward. "'Shall you go down to our house for me, eh?' said Miss Harvey, in a commanding, condescending, coaxing voice. She did not wait for an answer. "'Go down and ask Mamma to send me one of my school pinnas for Miss Brangwen, shall you?' The boy muttered a sheepish yes, Miss, and was moving away. "'Hey,' called Miss Harvey, "'come here. Now what are you going for? What shall you say to Mamma? "'A school pinna,' muttered the boy. "'Please, Mrs. Harvey, Miss Harvey says will you send her another school pinafore for Miss Brangwen, because she's come without one.' "'Yes, Miss,' muttered the boy, head-ducked, and was moving off. Miss Harvey caught him back, holding him by the shoulder. "'What are you going to say?' "'Please, Mrs. Harvey, Miss Harvey wants a penny for Miss Brangwen,' muttered the boy, very sheepishly. "'Miss Brangwen,' laughed Miss Harvey, pushing him away. "'Here, you'd better have my umbrella. Wait a minute.' The unwilling boy was rigged up with Miss Harvey's umbrella and set off. "'Don't take long over it,' called Miss Harvey after him. Then she turned to Ursula and said brightly, "'Oh, he's a caution, that lad, but not bad, you know.' "'No,' Ursula agreed weakly. The latch of the door clicked, and they entered the big room. Ursula glanced down the place. Its rigid long silence was official and chilling. Halfway down was a glass partition, the doors of which were open. A clock ticked, re-echoing, and Miss Harvey's voice sounded double, as she said, "'This is the big room. Standard five, six, and seven. Here's your place, five. She stood in the near end of the great room. There was a small high teacher's desk facing a squadron of long benches, two high windows in the wall opposite.' It was fascinating and horrible to Ursula. The curious, unliving light in the room changed her character. She thought it was the rainy morning. Then she looked up again because of the horrid feeling of being shut in a rigid, inflexible air, away from all feeling of the ordinary day, and she noticed that the windows were of ribbed, suffused glass. 
The prison was round her now. She looked at the walls, colour-washed, pale green and chocolate, at the large windows with frowsy geraniums against the pale glass, at the long rows of desks arranged in a squadron, and dread filled her. This was a new world, a new life with which she was threatened. But still excited, she climbed into her chair at her teacher's desk. It was high, and her feet could not reach the ground, but must rest on the step. Lifted up there, off the ground, she was in office. How queer! How queer it all was! How different it was from the mist of rain blowing over Cassite! As she thought of her own village, a spasm of yearning crossed her. It seemed so far off, so lost to her. She was here in this hard, stark reality. Reality! It was queer that she should call this the reality which she had never known till to-day, and which now so filled her with dread and dislike that she wished she might go away. This was the reality, and Cassite, her beloved, beautiful, well-known Cassite, which was as herself unto her, that was minor reality. This prison of a school was reality. Here, then, she would sit in state, the queen of scholars, here she would realize her dream of being the beloved teacher bringing light and joy to her children. But the desks before her had an abstract angularity that bruised her sentiment and made her shrink. She winced, feeling she had been a fool in her anticipations. She had brought her feelings and her generosity to where neither generosity nor emotion were wanted, and already she felt rebuffed, troubled by the new atmosphere, out of place. She slid down, and they returned to the teacher's room. It was queer to feel that one ought to alter one's personality. She was nobody. There was no reality in herself. The reality was all outside of her, and she must apply herself to it. Mr. Harvey was in the teacher's room, standing before a big open cupboard, in which Ursula could see piles of pink blotting paper, heaps of shiny new books, boxes of chalk, and bottles of colored inks. It looked a treasure-store. The schoolmaster was a short, sturdy man with a fine head and a heavy jowl. Nevertheless, he was good-looking, with his shapely brows and nose and his great hanging moustache. He seemed absorbed in his work and took no notice of Ursula's entry. There was something insulting in the way he could be so actively unaware of another person, so occupied. When he had a moment of absence, he looked up from the table and said good morning to Ursula. There was a pleasant light in his brown eyes. He seemed very manly and incontrovertible, like something she wanted to push over. "'You had a wet walk,' he said to Ursula. "'Oh, I don't mind. I'm used to it,' she replied with a nervous little laugh. But already he was not listening. Her words sounded ridiculous and babbling. He was taking no notice of her. "'You will sign your name here,' he said to her, as if she were some child, "'and the time when you come and go.' Ursula signed her name in the time-book and stood back. No one took any further notice of her. She beat her brains for something to say, but in vain. "'I'd let them in now,' said Mr. Harvey to the thin man, who was very hastily arranging his papers. The assistant teacher made no sign of acquiescence and went on with what he was doing. The atmosphere in the room grew tense. At the last moment Mr. Brunt slipped into his coat. "'You will go to the girls' lobby,' said the schoolmaster to Ursula, with a fascinating, insulting geniality, purely official and domineering. She went out and found Miss Harvey and another girl-teacher in the porch. 
On the asphalt yard the rain was falling. A toneless bell tang-tang-tanged drearily overhead monotonously, insistently. It came to an end. Then Mr. Brunt was seen, bareheaded, standing at the other gate of the schoolyard, blowing shrill blasts on a whistle, and looking down the rainy, dreary street. Boys in gangs and streams came trotting up, running past the master with a loud clatter of feet and voices, over the yard to the boy's porch. Girls were running and walking through the other entrance. In the porch where Ursula stood there was a great noise of girls, who were tearing off their coats and hats, and hanging them on the racks, bristling with pegs. There was a smell of wet clothing, a tossing out of wet draggled hair, a noise of voices and feet. The mass of girls grew greater. The rage round the pegs grew steadier. The scholars tended to fall into little noisy gangs in the porch. Then Violet Harvey clapped her hands, clapped them louder with a shrill, "'Quiet, girls, quiet!' There was a pause. The hubbub died down, but did not cease. "'What did I say?' cried Miss Harvey, shrilly. There was almost complete silence. Sometimes a girl, rather late, whirled into the porch and flung off her things. "'Leaders in place!' commanded Miss Harvey, shrilly. Pairs of girls in pinafores and long hair stood separate in the porch. "'Standard four, five, and six, fall in!' cried Miss Harvey. There was a hubbub which gradually resolved itself into three columns of girls, two and two standing smirking in the passage. In among the peg-racks other teachers were putting the lower classes into ranks. Ursula stood by her own standard five. They were jerking their shoulders, tossing their hair, nudging, writhing, staring, grinning, whispering, and twisting. A sharp whistle was heard, and Standard Six, the biggest girls, set off, led by Miss Harvey. Ursula, with her Standard Five, followed after. She stood beside a smirking, grinning row of girls waiting in a narrow passage. What she was herself she did not know. Suddenly the sound of a piano was heard, and Standard Six set off hollowly down the big room. The boys had entered by another door. The piano played on a march tune. Standard Five followed to the door of the big room. Mr. Harvey was seen away beyond at his desk. Mr. Brunt guarded the other door of the room. Ursula's class pushed up. She stood near them. They glanced and smirked and shoved. "'Go on,' said Ursula. They tittered. "'Go on,' said Ursula, for the piano continued. The girls broke loosely into the room. Mr. Harvey, who had seemed immersed in some occupation away at his desk, lifted his head and thundered, "'Halt!' There was a halt. The piano stopped. The boys, who were just starting through the other door, pushed back. The harsh, subdued voice of Mr. Brunt was heard. Then the booming shout of Mr. Harvey from far down the room, "'Who told Standard Five girls to come in like that?' Ursula crimsoned. Her girls were glancing up at her, smirking their accusation. "'I sent them in, Mr. Harvey,' she said in a clear, struggling voice. There was a moment of silence. Then Mr. Harvey roared from the distance, "'Go back to your places, Standard Five girls.' The girls glanced up at Ursula, accusing, rather jeering, fugitive. They pushed back. Ursula's heart hardened with ignominious pain. "'Forward, march!' came Mr. Brunt's voice, and the girls set off, keeping time with the ranks of boys. Ursula faced her class, some fifty-five boys and girls, who stood filling the ranks of the desks. She felt utterly non-existent. She had no place nor being there. 
she faced the block of children. Down the room she heard the rapid firing of questions. She stood before her class not knowing what to do. She waited painfully. Her block of children, fifty unknown faces, watched her, hostile, ready to jeer. She felt as if she were in torture over a fire of faces, and on every side she was naked to them. Of unutterable length and torture the seconds went by. Then she gathered courage. She heard Mr. Brunt asking questions in mental arithmetic. She stood near to her class, so that her voice need not be raised too much, and faltering, uncertain, she said, Seven hats at tuppence halfpenny each. A grin went over the faces of the class, seeing her commence. She was red and suffering. Then some hands shot up like blades, and she asked for the answer. The day passed incredibly slowly. She never knew what to do. There came horrible gaps when she was merely exposed to the children, and when, relying on some pert little girl for information, she had started a lesson, she did not know how to go on with it properly. The children were her masters. She deferred to them. She could always hear Mr. Brunt, like a machine, always in the same hard, high, inhuman voice. He went on with his teaching, oblivious of everything. And before this inhuman number of children she was always at bay— she could not get away from it. There it was, this class of fifty collective children, depending on her for command. For command it hated and resented. It made her feel she could not breathe. She must suffocate. It was so inhuman. They were so many that they were not children. They were a squadron. She could not speak as she would to a child, because they were not individual children. They were a collective inhuman thing. Dinner time came, and stunned, bewildered, solitary, she went into the teacher's room for dinner. Never had she felt such a stranger to life before. It seemed to her she had just disembarked from some strange, horrible state where everything was as in hell, a condition of hard, malevolent system, and she was not really free. The afternoon drew at her like some bondage. The first week passed in a blind confusion. She did not know how to teach, and she felt she never would know. Mr. Harvey came down every now and then to her class to see what she was doing. She felt so incompetent as he stood by, bullying and threatening, so unreal that she wavered, became neutral and non-existent. But he stood there watching with the listening, genial smile of the eyes that was really threatening. He said nothing. He made her go on teaching. She felt she had no soul in her body. Then he went away, and his going was like a derision. The class was his class. She was a wavering substitute. He thrashed and bullied. He was hated. But he was master. Though she was gentle and always considerate of her class, yet they belonged to Mr. Harvey, and they did not belong to her. Like some invincible source of the mechanism, he kept all power to himself, and the class owned his power and in school it was power, and power alone, that mattered. Soon Ursula came to dread him, and at the bottom of her dread was a seed of hate, for she despised him, yet he was master of her. Then she began to get on. All the other teachers hated him, and fanned their hatred among themselves, for he was master of them and the children. He stood like a wheel to make absolute his authority over the herd. That seemed to be his one reason in life— to hold blind authority over the school. His teachers were his subjects as much as the scholars, only because they had some authority 
his instinct was to detest them. Ursula could not make herself a favourite with him. From the first moment she set hard against him. She set against Violet Harvey also. Mr. Harvey was, however, too much for her. He was something she could not come to grips with, something too strong for her. She tried to approach him as a young, bright girl usually approaches a man, expecting a little chivalrous courtesy. But the fact that she was a girl, a woman, was ignored, or used as a matter for contempt against her. She did not know what she was, nor what she must be. She wanted to remain her own responsive personal self. So she taught on. She made friends with the Standard Three teacher, Maggie Schofield. Miss Schofield was about twenty years old, a subdued girl who held aloof from the other teachers. She was rather beautiful, meditative, and seemed to live in another lovelier world. Ursula took her dinner to school, and during the second week aided in Miss Schofield's room. Standard Three classroom stood by itself and had windows on two sides, looking on to the playground. It was a passionate relief to find such a retreat in the jarring school, for there were pots of chrysanthemums and coloured leaves and a big jar of berries. There were pretty little pictures on the wall, photogravure reproductions from Groy's and Reynolds' Age of Innocence, giving an air of intimacy, so that the room, with its window-space, its smaller, tidier desks, its touch of pictures and flowers, made Ursula at once glad. Here, at last, was a little personal touch to which she could respond. It was Monday. She had been at school a week and was getting used to the surroundings, though she was still an entire foreigner in herself. She looked forward to having dinner with Maggie. That was the bright spot in the day. Maggie was so strong and remote, walking with slow, sure steps down a hard road, carrying the dream within her. Ursula went through the class, teaching as through a meaningless daze. Her class tumbled out at midday in haphazard fashion. She did not realize what host she was gathering against herself by her superior tolerance, her kindness, and her laissez-aller. They were gone, and she was rid of them, and that was all. She hurried away to the teacher's room. Mr. Brunt was crouching at the small stove, putting a little rice pudding into the oven. He rose then, and attentively poked in a small saucepan on the hob with a fork. Then he replaced the saucepan lid. "'Aren't they done?' asked Ursula gaily, breaking in on his tense absorption. She always kept a bright, blithe manner, and was pleasant to all the teachers, for she felt like the swan among the geese, of superior heritage and belonging. And her pride at being the swan in this ugly school was not yet abated. "'Not yet,' replied Mr. Brunt, laconic. "'I wonder if my dish is hot,' she said, bending down at the oven. She half expected him to look for her, but he took no notice. She was hungry, and she poked her finger eagerly in the pot to see if her Brussels sprouts and potatoes and meat were ready. They were not. "'Don't you think it's rather jolly bringing dinner?' she said to Mr. Brunt. "'I don't know as I do,' he said, spreading a serviette on a corner of the table and not looking at her. "'I suppose it is too far for you to go home.' "'Yes,' he said. Then he rose and looked at her. He had the bluest, fiercest, most pointed eyes that she had ever met. He stared at her with growing fierceness. "'If I were you, Miss Brangwen,' he said menacingly, "'I should get a bit tighter hand over my class.' Ursula shrank. "'Would you?' she asked, sweetly, yet in terror. "'Aren't I strict enough?' 
"'Because,' he repeated, taking no notice of her, "'they'll get you down if you don't tackle em pretty quick. "'They'll pull you down and worry you till Harvey gets you shifted. "'That's how it'll be. "'You won't be here another six weeks.' "'And he filled his mouth with food. "'If you don't tackle em and tackle em quick.' "'Oh, but,' Ursula said resentfully, ruefully, "'the terror was deep in her. "'Harvey'll not help you. "'This is what he'll do. "'He'll let you go on, getting worse and worse.' "'till either you clear out or he clears you out. "'It doesn't matter to me except that you'll leave a class behind you "'as I hope I shan't have to cope with.' "'She heard the accusation in the man's voice and felt condemned. "'But still, school had not yet become a definite reality to her. "'She was shirking it. "'It was reality, but it was all outside her, "'and she fought against Mr. Brunt's representation. "'She did not want to realize. "'Will it be so terrible?' she said, quivering, rather beautiful, but with a slight touch of condescension, because she would not betray her own trepidation. "'Terrible?' said the man, turning to his potatoes again. "'I don't know about terrible.' "'I do feel frightened,' said Ursula. "'The children seem so—' "'What?' said Miss Harvey, entering at that moment. "'Why,' said Ursula, "'Mr. Brunt says I ought to tackle my class,' and she laughed uneasily. "'Oh, you have to keep order if you want to teach,' said Miss Harvey. "'Hard, superior, trite.' Ursula did not answer. She felt non-valid before them. "'If you want to be let to live, you have,' said Mr. Brunt. "'Well, if you can't keep order, what good are you?' said Miss Harvey. "'And you've got to do it by yourself.' His voice rose like the bitter cry of the prophets. "'You'll get no help from anybody.' "'Oh, indeed,' said Miss Harvey. "'Some people can't be helped.' And she departed. The air of hostility and disintegration, of wills working in antagonistic subordination, was hideous. Mr. Brunt, subordinate, afraid, acid with shame, frightened her. Ursula wanted to run. She only wanted to clear out, not to understand. Then Miss Schofield came in, and with her another more restful note. Ursula at once turned for confirmation to the newcomer. Maggie remained personal within all this unclean system of authority. "'Is the big Anderson here?' she asked of Mr. Brunt, and they spoke of some affair about two scholars, coldly, officially. Miss Schofield took her brown dish, and Ursula followed with her own. The cloth was laid in the pleasant standard three-room. There was a jar with two or three monthly roses on the table.' "'It is so nice in here. You have made it different,' said Ursula gaily. But she was afraid. The atmosphere of the school was upon her. "'The big room,' said Miss Schofield. "'Ha! It's misery to be in it.' She, too, spoke with bitterness. She, too, lived in the ignominious position of an upper servant, hated by the master above and the class beneath. She was, she knew, liable to attack from either side at any minute or from both at once— for the authorities would listen to the complaints of parents, and both would turn round on the mongrel authority the teacher. So there was a hard, bitter withholding in Maggie Schofield, even as she poured out her savoury mess of big golden beans and brown gravy. "'It is vegetarian hot-pot,' said Miss Schofield. "'Would you like to try it?' "'I should love to,' said Ursula. Her own dinner seemed coarse and ugly beside this savoury clean dish— "'I've never eaten vegetarian things,' she said. "'But I should think they can be good.' "'I'm not really a vegetarian,' said Maggie. "'I don't like to bring meat to school.' 
"'No,' said Ursula, "'I don't think I do either.' And again her soul rang in answer to a new refinement, a new liberty. If all vegetarian things were as nice as this, she would be glad to escape the slight uncleanness of meat. "'How good!' she cried. "'Yes,' said Miss Schofield, and she proceeded to tell her the receipt. End of chapter 13, part 2